This is a Federal News Network podcast. Intelligence agencies typically work with highly classified information, but more and more they want to take advantage of publicly available data and other open source intelligence. The Russian attack on Ukraine has spurred spy agencies to improve their use of what they call OSINT. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me with the latest. And Justin, let's start with what is the role of open source in the IC nowadays? Well, leaders say it is increasingly becoming their primary source of intelligence. And they're looking to set up some common standards around what kind of open source data agencies are acquiring to carry out their missions. And just to set the table, you know, intelligence agencies are really organized around different forms of intelligence, geospatial intelligence, traditionally gleaned from expensive spy satellites, signals intelligence that comes down to sophisticated computer network operations and other radio frequency, uh, different types of operations, human intelligence, traditionally highly trained spies. Those are all classified sources and methods open source intelligence is unclassified. It's generally available to just about everyone. It was traditionally things like foreign press reports. And now, of course, it's a range of data about people and events happening every day on social media and other open sources. So Patrice Tibbs is chief of community open source at the CIA. And she spoke at an event focused on open source hosted by the Intelligence and National Security Alliance last week. My five-year-old grandson understands the value of the iPhone and, and, and communicating. And if we can't get on board and figure that kind of thing out now and understand how that can be leveraged to make sure that we are clear in every country, every city, every home in in some cases, we will lose the lion's share of any benefit we have in open source. And again, that's Patrice Tibbs, chief of community open source at the CIA. And we said at the top, Justin, that Ukraine has been a proving ground for this idea that OSINT is more important than ever. Tell us more about that one. Well, that that's really referring uh, primarily to commercial satellite imagery that helped expose Russia's buildup of forces on the Ukrainian border prior to the invasion. And since then, that imagery and, and other satellite sources have helped tr- uh, publicly track the conflict's progression in detail. There's obviously a lot of other information available on social media about this conflict But, you know, even before Russia began massing its forces on the Ukrainian border late last year, the intelligence community had been thinking about how to better integrate OSINT into its classified work for some time now. Principal Deputy Director of National Intelligence Stacey Dixon spoke about that a couple weeks ago at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. It's something that we've been thinking about for a while. I think the awareness right now is how much is available for the public to see whether it is some of the companies putting imagery out on their websites for all to take a look at or highlighting it. And they're, they're very vocal as well, talking with the media about what you can see from the information they've collected. It puts us into a different place where we are not the sole ones to have access to that information. And there's a lot other, of other people now looking at what's happening around the world. And that's Stacey Dixon, the Principal Deputy Director of National Intelligence. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And what's the structure, Justin, of open source within the IC? I mean, who leads it? Who's in charge of it, if anybody? As the uh, director of the CIA, Bill Burns is what's referred to as the functional manager for open source within the intelligence community. And that means he reports directly to Director of National Intelligence, Avril Haines, on all all areas of open source whether that's requirements, you know, funding, uh, different tradecraft and standards. 
and, th- and then there's also a national open source committee, which includes senior leaders from each of the 18 intelligence agencies who come together to focus on these issues more specifically. And, and within that committee, there are subcommittees focused on things like data, collection management, training, and tradecraft. So there is a structure for open source within the intelligence community, and, and they discuss things that they're all working on. Well, does that mean that we're going to see some kind of a set of standards maybe coalescing around approaches to open source? I don't know to what extent we'll see it in the public, but Tib says that senior leaders are starting to take open source more seriously, and that provides a chance to set some common standards around training and tradecraft, and that's an area that she's leading as the CIA's lead in this issue. There there are 18 intelligence agencies, and one thing Tibbs has been focused on is getting some agreement on what are the right types of data sources that they should use. The key for me is just understanding how we modify and change and adapt to the amounts of data that's available. And because there's not a consistency of how all of the different 18 organizations are utilizing or capturing or integrating open source into their uh, workflows, there is inconsistency sometimes in how that is translated and shared and a variety of other things. What are the other barriers to intelligence agencies moving ahead more and taking more advantage of OSINT? Well, to technology and classification is one issue. As we mentioned at the top, they work in highly classified areas and sometimes taking unclassified information uh, that's on the low side bringing it up to the high side, as they call it, classified systems can create some issues around sharing. Uh, There's also legal issues, of course. Uh, You know, the intelligence community has to be very wary of what kind of data they're accessing, especially on U.S. persons. And if they start going out and obtaining data from social media feeds and things like that, they have to be wary of those issues as well. Tibbs also mentioned that just being an open source intelligence analyst in the IC is is not the sort of easiest job. It's not one of the most high profile sought after jobs. It doesn't offer the highest of salaries within the community right now. So it will be interesting to see how the IC and its different agencies start to put more of a priority on recruiting and training open source analysts, paying them at higher rates, perhaps, to understand whether they're actually putting a priority on this. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. 
And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we had a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit, and then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on 
what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.